lot of times when I'm, you know, putting these together, I'll just lay the sketches out on the table and let them live together. And they, you know, the narrative kind of finds its way together. Print friends and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, you can join us on Patreon and receive bonus content. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast so they can enjoy it too. I am so pleased to announce that we have reached our Indiegogo goal, so we will be bringing you transcripts of the entire podcast archive. Thank you so, so very much to everyone who donated to help make this happen, and very special thanks to Daniel Yasa, who came through with a wonderfully generous donation last week that pushed us to our goal. There is still a week left, so if you were planning on donating, now is the time, and I want to let you know that anything extra we raise will go towards the transcription of future episodes and paying our lovely intern Elizabeth for her time and expertise. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering you a diverse range of high-quality products since 1997. Products like their new line of professional relief inks, beginning with the flagship color Super Graphic Black, developed with artist-printer Bill Fick. Formulated with all the working properties artists demand, these light-fast inks roll out consistently, transfer beautifully, and clean up with soap and water. So, if you want to take your practice to the next level, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. In addition to their high-quality Japanese carving tools, McLean's has resources, books, DVDs, and information on how to use everything you need to make a woodblock, from barons and blocks to paper and whetstones. So head on over to McLean's at imcleans.com or follow the link in the show notes and learn something new today. My guest this week is Michael Barnes, professor of printmaking at Northern Illinois University. We'll talk about growing up in a small town and having album art as an early influence, the drawing surfaces of etching and lithography, how all those characters of his come up with some dark humor while he is asleep, and teaching as a practicing artist. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to explore new lands with Michael Barnes. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me um, on for an interview, Miranda. This yeah. Wonderful. I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel like you're among maybe the most requested artists that I get. They're always like, when are you going to talk to Michael Barnes? <laughs> Cause, uh, and I've had, you know, students of yours on um, as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like I had Aaron Coleman um, maybe about a year or two ago. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to finally get to have a chat about you and your work. But for anyone who doesn't know Michael Barnes already, would you just let people know who you are, where you are, 
and what you do. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I'm a artist and I live in Illinois near Chicago. I, mm-hmm. I'm a professor at Northern Illinois University. Um, I've been here for going on about 23, 24 years. Um, I grew up in Michigan. Um, I went to a small school in, in mid-Michigan, Alma College, and then went on to University of Iowa for graduate school. Spent a couple of years in California and have been here in Illinois for a long time. So mm. I uh, primarily do lithography for the last many, many years. <laughs> I can't remember. I <laughs> used to do a lot of etching. I, I love etching still. I just kind of fell into the nerdom of lithography. So mm-hmm. that's where I am. <laughs> yeah. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Um, I grew up in a small town in Michigan, uh, Ithaca. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the famous um, city that Odysseus was, was returning to in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> a very different Ithaca. <laughs> Ithaca, um, Michigan, actually, of course, yeah. <laughs> we have a small town nearby that's um, called Pompeii, spelled Pompeii, but it's it's pronounced Pompeii in Michigan. Um, <laughs> so I uh, grew up in, in the town of Ithaca and population of about 2,000 people and pretty much a, a farm town. Mm. Um, so art art was uh, really just a, something that I... I saw in books that my parents had around the house and grandparents had around the house. And um, as I was in school and taking art classes, I started learning more and more about the greater world world of art. So I, a lot of um, things that I saw growing up were like uh, illustration kind of work, you know, Norman Rockwell, mm. some of the, um, I guess, the kind of this easily accessible art like um, M.C. Escher and Geiger, um, I'd, I'd say music w- was a big influence, and um, album cover art was something that oh, uh-huh. is where I, I, I saw a lot of images that kind of inspired me early on. Yeah, it, that's so interesting you should say that, because it's never occurred to me before how much album cover art, you know, pre-internet, pre-Instagram, was really quite an influential way that contemporary art got into people's homes and was sort of, you know, mass produced and then consumed. And of course, you know, the kids these days won't remember, al- you know, liner notes or album art, but it, it, <laughs> it could be really quite influential as well. So that's, that's really interesting. So you were growing up in this town of, of, of 2,000 people, which <laughs> just sounds just incredibly little. Um, but what point did art come into your life kind of in a more meaningful way that you might got a sense that this is something that you'd like to really pursue and make a life out of it? Well, I'd, I really always loved to draw since I was since I was young. Um, I guess really just early on, I decided I wanted to be an artist, mm-hmm. not knowing anything about what being an artist was about. <laughs> I was just like, I can just, I can draw. And that's, that's all I need to do is just keep making art. Um, so as I you know, as I entered college and started learning more about the art world, um, graphic design and illustration were areas that I studied uh, because my parents would say, well, you have to get a job when you're out of school. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and after doing illustration for a while, I, I really, and graphic design, I just, I didn't like making work for other people. I liked making my own images and coming up with my own ideas. So that client, I guess that client-based world was something that wasn't that interesting to me. Um, I kind of froze up when people would ask me to, to, you know, make something that was, had the parameters of a client, uh, client-based, uh-huh. client-based piece. I just worked better off my own memory, out of my own head. 
Yeah, I think that that commissioned art or commissioned visual culture is such a world unto itself of people who can who can kind of produce in that way. I I, I think it's really its own talent for sure, and 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 one that I'm sure comes with all kinds of. <laughs> complications and frustrations as well. Yeah. Well, I, I have great respect for those that can do it well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about printmaking? When did that come into your life? Well, I was, I was at Alma College and um, I was working with um, Carrie Ann Parks Kirby and Kent Kirby and Robert Rozier at Alma College. It's a very small liberal arts school, four-year school. And it, it was nine miles from home. Oh. So I I lived at home most of the time and drove back and forth. Um, I had a studio there. Um, and we had a, a small print studio. And uh, Kent Kirby was uh, did a lot of um, kind of – he was he taught photographic design, art history, and also art making. So he, he did a lot of uh, photographic-based work. Um, he did a, a process called Colotype, which is a, one of the kind of the turn-of-the-century photographic, photographic print media like Photogravure. Mm-hmm. Uh, printing directly from a gelatin plate. It was very, um, very kind of chemi- chemistry heavy. And Kent was a really a master of that and wrote a book on it. And I, um, and also just, uh, we had a statewide print exhibition at Alma College that, that Kent had, had um, founded that was going on. It went on for about 30 years or so. I, I, I think they kind of shifted the gear, gears of the gallery, you know, after about 30 or 40 years of doing the show. But every year they'd have a, a guest lecturer come in that would curate the show. And so through that, I started meeting artists like, um, I think the first one that came in that I really kind of struck my interest was David Becker, um, who who was a professor at Madison, at UW-Madison, and then uh, Evan Summer, who um, does, you know, both of them do fantastic black and white etching work, um, narrative, you know, kind of narrative or landscape-based and that's what really set me on fire with printmaking. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there drooling over Evans. Uh, he brought a bunch of prints and laid them out on the table. And I was standing there kind of drooling over these. And I was like, what are these? Yeah, right? Yeah, that <laughs> and, moment, right? What Kent, am I looking at? <laughs> <laughs> I turned to Kent Kirby and he's like, you should take a printmaking class. <laughs> so that was that was kind of it. Yeah. From there, I kind of fell in love with you know the various media of print. And so what, what were they? Do you remember? Were they woodcuts? Were they lithographs? Uh, etchings. Uh, they were Evan, etchings. Okay. Evan, yeah. Evan is a, you know, an amazing etcher. Um, just he has a, a very fantastic world that he creates. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of these, uh, if you haven't seen Evan Summer's work, um, you really should look at it. It's uh, uh, the large scale etchings that are kind of these fantastic, almost kind of post-apocalyptic sort of worlds, mm-hmm. very minimal um but a lot of perspective and geometry with these dark skies and black lakes and engravings etchings and he does collagraphs as well so i just i really loved his work and then david becker's work with all the um the fabulous characters and very strange dark narratives Mm -hmm. were something that just really really kind of hit a note with me and then i feel like you know you said that you you did etching and and that you still love it but I feel like you're you're so known for lithography um, and the work that you produce in that media. So, when did that sort of come into your life and start to take over? And and you know, how did you get so good at it? Like, just like give everyone the secret, please. Yeah. 
I still don't feel like I'm very good at it. But, <laughs> um, I, I was a uh, Robert Rozier was one my was my um, painting professor who also taught printmaking, and because uh, because Kirby retired when I was a, a junior, but I kept working with him. And then I worked with uh, Carrie Ann Parks in, in drawing and sculpture, um, and she was really one of my really major mentors in drawing. Uh, but I just really loved how print could, you know, my drawings would translate into the print medium. I just really loved how, you know, I'm, I, I figured, I, I've always said that I'm really, you know, drawing based with my work, narrative and drawing based. And but I just really love how they get, how they translate into the print media. Uh, lithography was something they we had a. A litho press, an old Griffin press in the studio, and a bunch of stones. And um, Bob's like, "Well, I, I sort of got ahead on all the projects, and I was like, I want to do one of these stones over here in the corner." And he, so he gave me a set of notes. He said, "Okay," you know, kind of showed me how to grain the stone, and and then he gave me some pencils and said, "Here, draw on it." So I drew on it, and then um, we sort of set a time one night, and he's like, "You know, I'll come in and help you print," mm-hmm. and so we printed it up and and then from there I just I really loved how I could because I'd been doing etchings mostly yeah and I just loved how drawing was so direct on the stone and the seductive surface of that litho stone yeah uh, the Bavarian limestone you can't beat it and then so when I was looking for grad school I just Kent Kirby just really coached me on schools to go to and and I ended up going to University of Iowa to work with uh, Robert Glasgow at Iowa so and then it just um I did a lot of etchings, you know, through that time, kind of talking all technical stuff here. But it's, you know, I just really fell in love with lithography at that point. And, um, you know, the medium is is wonderful in the history of it. I've really gotten into the history and, you know, kind of the really nerding out on (laughs) the nuance of lithography. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people in the print world truly do love about working in the medium is the incredible history of printmaking and the way it's it's linked to the commercial, to the marketplace, to the development of ideas, to politics. It's It feels so wonderful to be a part, I think, of that tradition as well. Yeah, that's such a special part of it. I'd also like to ask you a bit about like the actual subject matter of your work. Um, are you okay? Yeah. 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 No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Cause it's, um, cause you have a really, really distinctive style. And I think that that's something that a lot of young artists, when they're starting out, like they're trying to kind of find a voice, right? And that's a huge part of going to school and being trained and, and just being a young exploring artist. And, and you have, you have a, a Michael Barnes voice that's loud and clear. How did you come to that <laughs> style? I mean, you talked a little bit about your influences, which sounds like, you know, maybe has some of that, uh, you know, some of that aesthetic has sort of has been passed down generationally, like in that way. But what was your journey to come up with discovering what it was you wanted to make? So I'm, I'm understanding why you asked me if I was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just taking a drink of water. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah. I've had that comment before. People come up to me in a gallery and they're like, you, you look so normal. <laughs> yeah. Like, are you, are you okay? Um, Do you have someone to talk to? Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a parent teacher conference where my dad sat me down <laughs> and he's like, you know, I had a talk with your art teacher, and she's really worried about you. <laughs> 
pulled out this little sketch I had done. It has this guy looking at an atomic cloud in the distance and his face is all melting. And <laughs> this was in, you know, ninth grade or something. And it's like, oh, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, that's so <laughs> funny. So, yeah. To too much Iron Maiden, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, there's that album art, right? Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, you know, aesthetically, the, the work really does come from. You know, once when I was once I was uh, exposed to art history, I I fell in love with the Northern Renaissance and Hieronymus mm-hmm. Bosch, Peter Bruegel, mm-hmm. and um, you know really the fantastic worlds that that Bosch creates. You know, Bruegel's work really kind of picks up on the style of Bosch and mimics a lot of the uh, kind of the popular themes of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I could name an influence, my primary influence, I would say it probably has to be you know Bosch, uh, just. It just I've I've sort of searched the world and tried to tried to see as many of the his paintings as I could find and yeah. and see them in person. And my work is you know the the narratives really come out of my head. They're reactions to the world around me, uh, personal narratives, uh, what's going on in politics and culture. I've never really never really wanted to be you know overtly political in the work because uh, I I feel like the uh, political work has a you know, you, you're competing with the media today. So if you look mm-hmm. at Goya and, and Daumier, who were, you know, you know, really their work is timeless. They did it in a way that it's timeless. But, um, you know, they weren't competing with MSNBC and, yeah. you know, CNN. And, yeah, <laughs> and things, not so much, the, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, dude, I, I did a, a, a piece for a Trump portfolio recently that Richard Peterson and, and Beauvais Lyons organized. And I, I had trouble with it because I, I just really didn't want to do a political piece. Yeah. <laughs> I especially didn't want to draw a picture of Trump. I was no. like, I don't want to yeah. more like that guy. <laughs> I drew him as a big monster. But so, yeah, I guess the the work is really sort of, it's, you know, it's buried in my head. I guess that's the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really interesting what you're saying about, you know, wanting to maybe react to the world, but in a way that's not this super black and white, you know, and I think that one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is, you know, this idea of the kind of, there's the catharsis that art can bring, you know, if you're like, here's Trump looking really awful, you know, and like, you might feel some kind of emotional release from that, but it doesn't necessarily make anyone think about things or necessarily question things. And it just, you know, makes the people who are mad at a political figure feel better and makes the people who support the political figure feel mad. And to kind of go a little bit deeper, like I think, you know, the way your work does is that it sort of seems to kind of drop below the surface a bit. And so sort of what I mean by that is, you know, rather than saying, you know, here's this one person and they suck in these ways, it's it seems <laughs> to get more into kind of like an emotional feeling or some things that are maybe kind of inherent to the human experience that are deeper and then sort of lead to these outcomes, you know, whether that's undue optimism or ignorance or, you know, violence, that these are the things that are more like a universal theme. And that maybe is what you're speaking to, too, with being able to create timeless images, is that if you move from the specific into that kind of maybe deeper level of human trouble, you can get there. Yeah, and I think that you know the sense of of creating something that's poetic and something mm. that is you know is a has a more universal 
access to it, I, I think it's very important. Mm. Um, and you know, I've what I've what I feel like I've I've tried to create is this world, my own world that has these, you know, it's a cast of these characters that wander through the world. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of written about that a bit in my statements, you know, where they're they're a bit oblivious to the world they're existing in. They're they're sort of trapped in some sort of it's like a, one of those glass ant houses. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're sort of wandering, wandering aimlessly through the tunnels of their ant house, and and somebody's somebody outside's watching them. Maybe we're watching them and <laughs> analyzing, like, what are they doing? <laughs> and I think you know we could be like that as as the human race. You know, I I, I read a lot of read and you know, a lot of science fiction, watch a lot of science fiction cinema and literature, and um, you know, so I. Yeah, those stories about the uh, sort of the human race, you know, and the Earth being a, a tiny mm-hmm. little microcosm of the greater universe. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know what you're saying about how they your your characters, I guess, if you if you want to, I think that's what you called them. Yeah, your your characters or your figures, they they don't ever seem to be particularly upset about the wasteland that they're inhabiting. You know, they're just kind of focused on their task and. I think it adds very much to the feeling of kind of eeriness. And it, when you were talking about science fiction, it it reminds me is that read a fair amount of science fiction as a kid and really kind of like the classics like Vonnegut and Douglas Adams and that kind of thing. And I know I know mm-hmm. since then, like science fiction has, has taken off and there's all kinds of wonderful, like extremely, you know, imaginative things sort of that go beyond that. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that, that, you know, reading, you know, Douglas Adams Hitchhiker series, one of the most disturbing moments in that series for me is when Ford and Arthur are, are about to be shot out into space. They're in a, an alien ship and, you know, Arthur is the human and Ford's the alien character and Ford's completely not upset at all about the fact that they're about to die. He's just like, well, this, you know, looks like this is how we're going to die. And, and, and Arthur is so, you know, like they're in this situation together, but he doesn't, he's not feeling this sort of human reaction to it. And mm-hmm. it, remember, it really was quite off-putting for me as a, as a young reader and feeling maybe a little bit of that kind of in your work, the way you like, you look at the landscape that these figures are in it. It's not going well for them. <laughs> and yet they, they, they seem to be they okay. Don't, <laughs> yeah. They don't really know that. Nobody's yeah. told them. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, you know, in, in getting into kind of a larger, you know, political social context of, of, you know, the things I think about it and it's like what the, it's the type of world you're born into. Mm. And you know, I've, I've been extremely fortunate in the type of world that I've been born into. You know, my, you know, my family life has been wonderful. I have wonderful parents and siblings, and um, you know, wonderful wife, and you know, we have a wonderful life and very comfortable. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the world are not don't have that same kind of luxury. They're born into a world, or you know, a world is sort of imposed upon them that mm. you know, it's a very tough existence. So. You know, I, I I always think about that. You know, so these, I guess these characters in my story are just, you know, there, there's there's also a, a there's an element of dark humor in them mm-hmm. as well. So I I don't, you know, I'm not trying to just be heavy on everything, but um, you know, there is satire 
you know, I, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, social and political satire in the work. Yeah, that, that element of dark humor was something that I wanted to ask you about, because the, the compositions are never just, here's a dystopian wasteland, go feel bad about it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, they have so much more subtlety and playfulness that really makes them occupy a much more curious space, where I think the viewer necessarily doesn't know maybe how they're supposed to react to it. And that that really invites this sort of long looking and this decoding. And I'm wondering how much of finding that balance between the grim and the mild happens consciously for you. Do you ever draw an image and you're like, oh, this is getting too silly or this is getting too dark. I need to steer it back. Or is this kind of just something that happens naturally in your in your practice? You know, I guess I I kind of feel like everything happens a little bit spontaneously. It, it's, it's, I don't work in a spontaneous way by any means. It's very, you know, things are kind of built up. But I, I'd say the original, a lot of the original sketches are, um, I keep a, a box full of my sketches. And I, I work in small sketchbooks. I draw on pieces of paper I might have with me. Mm. And when I, a lot of times when I'm, you know, putting these together, I'll just lay the sketches out on the table and let them live together. Hmm. And they, you know, the narrative kind of finds its way together. If you can sort of imagine going to sleep and the sketches start talking to each other and moving <laughs> around, <laughs> um, that's kind of that's kind of what they do. <laughs> and I'll I'll find you know I'll find the the combinations and then develop you know a larger narrative from that. So I mean, individual sketches a lot of times are drawn from you know faculty meetings and <laughs> academia <laughs> is a wonderful resource for. <laughs> imagery material. I thought you were um, going to say for dystopian <laughs> narratives, but <laughs> well, that too, yeah. <laughs> as the image develops in, in a larger piece, then I'll, you know, I'll maybe bring other elements in and, and, you know, kind of flesh it out as I, as I go through the piece. Mm, yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a process, um, but it, it, it starts a little bit more spontaneous, but then it, it gets more, gets more developed as I, as I move through it. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, and I think this goes hand in hand with the dark humor about the titling that you use, because I think a lot of times the titling will add that element of humor a bit or or give a bit more context to the work. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is, for instance, the example of your piece, A Race to the End. And, you know, it has this grim figure who is inside or maybe actually part of you know this this four legged sort of stool. It's like he may that may be the lower part of his body. <laughs> he's 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 stuck. He's stuck. He's stuck inside of it. He's stuck in it. Yeah. And uh, you know is is holding on to a steering wheel that's attached to nothing, and his stare, which I just love. It's he's looking out into the horizon. You know, like where he's trying to go. <laughs> And you've got this little, this like petrol pump behind him and, and some wind turbines and, uh, you know, a little, a little dish underneath him. And it's, it's, it's something that you see it and, and you can kind of put the elements together and then you give it a title like that. And it seems to a lot of it fall into place in, in some ways, or at least for me. And, and that happens a lot with your work uh, for me in terms of titling. And so I guess my long winded, question is sort of about when do the titles sort of come to you? Do you do you complete it and then you think, okay, like to put the finishing touch on for this, I'm going to give a little more context and I'm going to call it X, Y, or Z? Or 
is it, do you think of the titles first? I mean, how does this happen for you? Um, the, the titles are a very difficult process because the title is, is very important to me. And mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, you know, imagine a writer, you know, coming up with a title for their book. Uh, you know, it, it sort of sets the whole, it sets the whole theme up, you know, the whole picture. Um, mm-hmm. It can be a clue to what's going on. It could be, I, I don't like the title, titles to be too overly descriptive, right. um, too obvious. Um, because I, I think the title should be as poetic as the piece. It should complement the piece. Um, a lot of times I'll just I'll have a, a sheet of paper in my studio and I'll just start writing titles down. And sometimes you know it'll it'll take me a month after I finish a piece to actually get the title down. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, then other times they just come to me. So it's yeah, it, it works both ways. So was titling something that was sort of always important to you? Because it's it seems like it's it's a part of the artwork in a really kind of fundamental way, and that in which some titles aren't necessarily. I think the the titles the titles have become more important, and I've 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 tried to be more, I guess, more thoughtful on the titles as I mature as an artist. Um, I had a, a period where a lot of the titles were just like the interview, the mm, you know, mm-hmm. the serenade. You know, they were, they'd reference something, but it was just a simple the, you know, yeah. the thing. And and so I have I have tried to be a lot more uh, thoughtful on the titles as I, you know, because they really do, you know, complement the piece. I, I don't just throwing a title on there that's silly or <laughs> just you know, flat out descriptive is is useless. Um, I think it can actually. You know, it's like putting a piece in a bad frame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's sort of like you've come so far. Like, don't give up now. Yeah, don't put it, don't put it in the bad in the bad frame. And yeah, I was I was looking at uh, some of your your newer work um, because obviously when I was most familiar with your work was when I was working at at, at Davidson Galleries because you're one of the artists mm-hmm. you represent. And I was sort of curious of what you'd been up to, and I noticed that about your titles. You know, because when I was working with I remember, you know, the optimist, the pessimist, the plot, you know, this was a lot of the titles were there. <laughs> and then one um, that I think was, I think a really good example of this um, was the some things are best forgotten, which is an image of these creatures sort of digging in, you know, the the dirt of again looks very sort of post-apocalyptic landscape, you know, maybe pulling out the remnants of our society from the ground is sort of what it feels like is what's going on. Uh, And then, you know, adding that long kind of poetic title like that, I think just really, it's just a beautiful compliment to it. So yeah, yeah, I I feel like I've seen the evolution a bit um, in the years that I've known your work. And it's, it's really cool. I was, I was proud of that title because that, (laughs) that was, that was what I worked really hard at. Yeah. The right title for it because it, it really was about that sense of nostalgia and you know digging up the past you know whether it's your own past or you know a world you know historical sort of past and, and it's just you know sometimes things are not as as bright as you remembered them mm. <laughs> some sometimes they are some you know so so it could work both ways but I, I left it open so you know some some things are best forgotten yes not not everything not everything but some things (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah i'm wondering too if you could speak to working with sort of a 
a limited color palette that you do. You know, like it's there. You're you're not monochromatic, but it's all. I would say, you know, within a certain slice of the color wheel that you tend to work. And I think, you know, one of the the real benefits that that it has is that it really creates such a consistency from image to image in a way that we can kind of understand your work in relation to the works that have come before. Like it really ties the pieces together. And of course, there's the the aesthetic voice as well. But, you know, you see these these figures and you you kind of, you know, since they're all kind of in the same world, it has the same color, you get the sense that they're all kind of working in the same space. But is that something that you ever find kind of limiting? Or do you ever like long for a neon green in your life at any point? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was working on on one piece and, and Kelly Hames, who is a one of my former grad students, was was assisting me and uh and I was I was I was just asking her, I was like, you know what, you know, what would be a good color to use? And she said, just don't use brown. <laughs> said, why don't you print an orange, a brighter orange? <laughs> and so you know, I, I took her advice on it. But what I do is I print really bright colors and I layer so many of them together that they mm. end up being brown. <laughs> <laughs> so there so, might be a lime green in there somewhere. We're just not there, seeing it. Yeah. There, there is. It's buried in there. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I, I guess with, with, with color, I, I like... I like an older kind of nostalgic sort of look to it. Um, I, I love the old sepia tone photographs. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm I'm trying to put the pieces in maybe a, like a different time period. Um, I, I'm always trying to kind of create something that that looks almost antique. That's you know it's placed in a different era. Yeah, so I guess it is it has kind of become my aesthetic. But um, you know, I worked with a lot of color in grad school, and I was doing a lot of layers of pretty bright colors with some of the pieces um it was more of an abstract phase of my um career but uh i just kind of i came back to this more monochromatic color palette and it really it it's i guess that's what it's kind of based in it's just a i worked mostly black and white through undergrad and to parts of grad school and once i started working in color i guess i just kind of always wanted to be back in that black and white world, but I wanted uh-huh. a chromatic, a chromatic black and white. <laughs> uh-huh. No, I think that's a, a very so. good way of putting it. Yeah. It's so interesting for you to say that you want them to feel like they're at a different time. And I didn't realize that that's exactly what they were doing for me as a viewer. I hadn't kind of thought of it consciously and, you know, and whether that's sort of really far in the future or really far in the past or kind of stepped just slightly to the right in the infinite universe spectrum, but that warm kind of sepia palette just gives your mind this subtle message of, okay, this isn't from right now, so where is it from? Yeah, it works really well. That's so interesting. Or or it's it's maybe it's like you're looking through some sort of dirty glass into mm. another dimension. Mm-hmm. I'm also hoping you can speak to creating the compositions kind of in a formal way, because they're pretty minimal compositions, you know, in the sense that often it will be like a figure and a couple of objects, and then a little bit of background, or maybe not even any objects in the background. And yet they have 
an incredibly rich narrative, each one of them. And they're almost like a kind of poetry in that way. If you, One of the best definitions of poetry, at least one of the things that makes me understand poetry, is when someone said, you know, poetry is using the least amount of words possible to describe what you're trying mm-hmm. to get at. And I find that a little bit when I look at your work as well. And how do you find that place? Like, how do you get each each image to do so much heavy lifting within the narrative? I, I guess the best, it's just intuition. It's, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, trusting my trusting my judgment on something. I, I've, I've actually drawn pieces that have pretty full um, compositions, you know, in terms of an illustrative kind of a packed environment. And then I've gone in and, and scraped everything away. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so I just like it doesn't. This isn't helping. Um, it was it was something my one of my grad school professors, Robert Glasgow, would talk to me a lot about in the work and, and editing information, and and also Keith Acapulco, who I worked with at, at Iowa. You know, just kind of being selective and and what you you put in a piece, and you don't necessarily always have to jam pack the compositions. And I was kind of like that, you know, Burgle, you know, painting. Mm. In my early work was was every square inch was packed with something going on. Yeah, which has its own charm. But yeah, yeah. I kind of moved into that that series of the figures that are really suspended in these kind of vacuous spaces. Uh, there was a lot of textures in some of them, but um, I really just wanted to kind of play around with just focusing on the uh, main event of the piece mm. and act, add, activate. You know, because one of the things as as a teacher, you see all the students will quite often they'll they'll make a piece with, I call them floaters. Uh-huh. So the, there's, there's like one, there's like a, a kitty cat or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. I can <laughs> picture that. <laughs> with, with nothing in the background, just floating in the middle. Yep. <laughs> and that's like, well, you know, at least activate the space, you know, think about, think about the space that's around it and why you're leaving it blank. Um, and so some of the, you know, some of the series that I started when I was working in France and in a series I did in New Zealand, um, they were, you know, kind of these, I call them like vignettes. And um, I, I saw some old antique plates that were in a shop. It just had scenes of Paris, you know, the mm. figures ca- carrying racks of silverware or water pails. And there was minimal background. And I just really liked the effect of that and really kind of focusing in on it. And then I had this series of, of weapons and malignant arsenal and mm-hmm. um, invasive species that I just really focused on and just made them really sort of monolithic in the center of the page with a lot of white space around them. So um, so it, it really kind of depends on the piece because I, I go back and forth. I, I do a lot of pieces that have uh, borders on them with you know a lot of uh, environment things going on and then I'll, I'll jump into some that are a little bit more simplified um, space, but uh, you know it's important to, that the figures do occupy the space in some way or another. So the, the way I position the figures on the space, the, their interactions, you know, everything's really thought out in the composition. So the the pages, you know, the edges of the paper are very important to me. I think that's a, a really wonderful, just like little piece of little nugget of gold advice there about how. Your composition as an artist, it, it it's on as much page as you leave, you know, like it's it's it, it goes from from edge to edge and all of it in some way is feeding into the way your the viewer perceives the work. And you've you've had some experience with, with print collecting side of it and in, in 
and you know, you see a lot of these antique prints that have been trimmed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just oh. like, I, I found a, I found a, a portrait of Napoleon on eBay that was actually printed by Senefelder or, or his studio. Oh my gosh. Very, very, very early. It was, it was beat to hell. <laughs> it had been folded and, yeah. um, but it was really trimmed down and tight to the image and it was, um, but it was very, I thought, a very cool thing to find. But, you, you know, you think about that kind of, you know, how those were originally done and, and the the space around the portrait made them grand. You know, when you trim them down so tight, then they become claustrophobic and and they kind of diminished almost. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I that would always be a bit of a, a heartbreak. But people would do it, I think, you know, to have them fit into their book or you know whatever it was is is when you'd see yeah. these older pieces that have just been it's like look watching someone who's like cut their fingernails too short or something it's like ah <laughs> no it hurts it hurts to look at <laughs> yeah yeah you mentioned um you know your experience as a teacher as well and i i wanted to ask you about finding that balance between being a teacher and an artist because i feel like you're someone who I often hear your students, you know, talk to your generosity as a teacher and how much they got out of working with you. So you're you're clearly putting energy and and you know, creative energy into that, but then also you're producing these lithographs which I'm sure people hearing you speak of them also realize that that is a tremendous amount of creative energy as well. How do you find that balance? What's what yeah like do you do you sleep like how do you <laughs> uh, I don't yeah I don't know if I've found the balance yet mm. uh, yeah I, I just I love I love teaching and um you know I, I feed off that part of it I, uh, I, I, uh-huh. I can't I really can't say you know that I, I love academia right. yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie on that one but um I, I love the teaching I love working with the students and I know you, you talked to Jessica Robles and, mm-hmm. and Aaron and Aaron Coleman, and I've had just really been so fortunate in having s- such wonderful students over the years, and, and I, I really feed off that. It's When you get out of school, it's something I always tell my students. You get out of school, and you have to find, when you're in school, you have this community. You have people that give you feedback on your work, and you could talk to them about their work. They talk to you about your work, and you feed off each other, and I feel like being in that environment, I've it, it's really inspired me, and it's yeah. kept me kept me going strong. I don't know. I, I have a lot of friends that are out in you know away from academia that are doing great. Um, they they find their communities, and I think that's that's the key. You have to find your community. I've I've just enjoyed it, and, and I I try not to be the type of teacher where you're sort of directing students to make your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I want each one of them to make their own work, be unique, find their own vision. Um, so I think that's, that's the challenge and in the, in the diverse range of people you work with. So, Mm, yeah, but, but it's a challenge finding, you know, the the balance in time. I I don't work at school anymore. I used to, when I first started teaching, I, I printed at school mostly. And then I eventually developed my own studio with my you know, I bought my own press, and now it's in my garage. So I'm sitting in my garage now. Oh, nice! <laughs> the, the, the car's parked outside, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I'll do I'll do a few things at school, but it's it's really hard to 
you know, I kind of have to work a little. I've, I've never been one that's even really been able to work with assistants too much because except when I'm printing, when I'm making my work, I kind of almost need to be by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a hermit in that sense, but and let, let things kind of like I, the drawings need to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. How many um, I know you were talking about layering these bright colors and you end up, you know, with these really deep kind of sepia brownish warm tones. How many layers is like the, the average finished Michael Barnes composition? Uh, well, I've, I've gotten more efficient at it. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some of the, the early ones were like 15 color layers or so. And, and, um, I remember seeing a lecture. Wayne Kimball gave a lecture who was who was one of the greatest lithographers in you know the modern generation, and and he he took you through a progressive images of all the color layers. And I think he had like twenty five color layers, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm so lazy. Uh, <laughs> um, but I've kind of gotten it down to like six or seven colors in most of the pieces. So, I mean, just kind of geeking out on the on the uh, the tech stuff. I. I use a, a pin registration mm. method, and I typically draw the key image. Um, the key image may not contain everything in the uh, composition, but it's kind of the you know the key element, maybe the main figure. And I, I proof that, and then I I do a lot of the drawings on mylar's, and I shoot photo plates, uh, positive working photo plates that are then pinned to the you know pin registered, and then printed on top of the. Quite often, I'll print a color or two first, and then I'll drop the key, and then I'll keep printing on it. And and the print quite often grows as I, you know, I'll I'll respond to what's there. That's one of the ways I really like I like that way of working because I can respond to what's on the page instead of laying out all your colors ahead of time mm-hmm. and then just printing them in order. I I don't like working that way. I like to build because uh, sometimes I'll you know I'll add or a color layer will be informed by what's already there, you know, kind of how things are progressing. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But yeah, I've gotten it, I've gotten it down to, you know, five or six colors per print. So sometimes more if I need them. Yeah. I was that, that still sounds like a lot, but yeah. <laughs> okay. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't see any of them. <laughs> they're all, they're all buried. <laughs> they all turn gray. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely different. Like it's it's a very different experience seeing uh, one of your prints than seeing the same image that if it was just printed in brown. Like absolutely, like you can, you, they're there, they're there, they're oh, there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. colors are there, and and I don't, you know, I don't like. I work in 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 sort of a CMYK process that cyan, magenta, yellow, black, like the commercial printing, but I. I expand it and I shift the colors. It, it's I'd say it's more of a working. Uh, warm to cool mm. and so I'll, I'll generally you know I love ochres <laughs> I, uh-huh. you know, I just use an ochre at some point or another and then I'll work into maybe a darker brown and a you know like a phthalo blue and then a, a red you know someplace in there so there's there, there are kind of the process colors in there but they're they're shifted to my liking yeah the warm warm to cool it's always so interesting to hear how different lithographers go about playing with the colors and finding their way forward with them because it's you know there's certainly not an industry standard it sounds like it's so much more about what works for you and the way your brain wants to interact with the colors is what seems to be the most important part oh certainly certainly yeah um and i'm thinking too 
I would just love to to ask you, do you have any particular stories about reactions you've gotten from your compositions that stand out? I don't know, like a artist talk or an opening or something like that, you know, other than people being like, are you okay? You know? <laughs> I was, I was at, I was at a, a, a talk at once cause I, I've done a lot of visiting artists, um, lectures at, at uni- mostly at universities, some, you know, galleries and such, but, um, I was done, I was sort of in the question answer session at, at one school and, and it, it was somebody in the audience was was actually somebody that I'd worked with at a residency. Mm-hmm. So they sort of knew me and knew my work, but they they asked me why I was inspired to do such uh, depressing uh, <laughs> images. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just kind of started laughing. I was just like, "Well, I don't really find them depressing." I, <laughs> yeah, I think there's dark humor in there. You know, I guess you know you could you know, if you want to see them as depressing, you teach their own, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, I always, you know, I, I think probably any artist that works in, in a narrative style gets people that come to them and, and yeah. bring their own stories to it. You know, all oh, that reminds me of, you know, and they yeah. tell you their story. Just I just nod and say, yeah, yeah, I yeah, can see that. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not there at all, but it's <laughs> each their own. Definitely. But, you know, I, do, I do leave the images, the images do have that kind of openness to them that people can certainly do that but i you know i have i have a pretty clear idea what's going on in the pieces and mm. i don't just at one point i was just like you know oh yeah just leave them open for the and i see students write that in their statements a lot and it's like it's like um i have a pretty clear idea of what i'm making the pieces about yeah and th- sometimes there, there's things that i don't necessarily you don't need you know it's too much information it's 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 my own personal story mm. kind of embedded things in there but Wondering, too, if you could maybe just kind of as like, a, I don't know what to call it, like maybe like a, a carrot for struggling young lithographers out there, kind of an inspiration. I know you've got to travel a bit through litho as well um, and, you know, see different shops. Yeah. Can you just speak to that and that experience of kind of being in that the broader lithography community out in the world? Yeah, I just I think it's 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 an exciting world. And um I really kind of geeked out on the history of it, and I, I love the uh, the processes as they do as they do them different ways in different parts of the world. And so, when I've had a chance to travel to other other countries, I've, I've really I had a chance to work in in Germany for a couple of months, and then go back for a conference that was a lithography conference. It's called Litho Days, and there was a artist from you know all over the world that came to this little um, symposium. And it was just—it was probably one of the highlights of my litho life. Mm. <laughs> it's like we could just talk about, you know, every, you know, some sometimes you you were watching us watching Robert Yankovic and Robert Yankovic Jr. do um, a reductive litho, and they were, you know, is getting translated from you know Slovakian uh-huh. into into German and then you know finally down to English and and so there was some loss in translation but it was just so exciting to watch these other artists at work and watch the ways that they go about it yeah and the community is like you even though um, I was working in in Serbia with um in at the uh, academia there and working with the two printers at the at the studio who didn't speak a lot of English, but we had a communication through litho. And yeah. and so I, I just thought that was so exciting that we're communicating through our medium. And, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Oh, I love that. So, 
I guess the carrot is just, you know, there's litho is it's, it's that I always say, if you learn litho from 10, 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different ways of doing it. There's no mm-hmm. right or wrong way. It's just, there's always something more to learn. And, and I just, I just find it, you know, it's, it's an exciting medium. Do you think that that variance that you see, I mean, it must be quite a flexible medium. And then of also, of course, resources vary from country to country. Stones vary from stone to stone. Is that sort of, and then it's, it's also, you know, not so prolific out in the world that, that it maybe has a chance to be standardized. Do you think that's sort of why there's so many different ways of, of coming at it and creating an image and problem solving? Is, is that where that comes from? Well, I, yeah, I think in part because uh, you know, some of the techniques that I've I've learned are um, they're kind of a product of um, like working in Poland and learning this asphaltum reduction process. It's like you know the Cold War era. Um, you know, the countries had limitations to what yeah. they could get from materials, so they learned to work with what they had, and really kind of taking things. You know, learning how to make their own pencils and drawing materials. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we're really kind of facing that with technology now because a lot of our materials that we are, are used to working with, um, because commercial printing is moving more to the digital side, so we're yeah. losing a lot of a lot of traditional, you know, we still have gum arabic and lithotine and, you know, mineral spirits and all those things, but a lot of people are making their own litho pencils now. Yeah. Um, just kind of the, the standard quality of the pencils and, and the different materials. Um, I have So I have a lot of friends that are, you know, making making their own rollers and <laughs> doing cool things. I've been making my own litho pencils for, you know, quite a few years now. Really? Pretty much all I've been drawing with are my own pencils. So. Oh, that's wild. I didn't know people were doing that. Yeah, they're just real basic. You know, it's going back to some of the early, you know, Senefelder recipes and Bolton, <laughs> Bolton Brown's book has been kind of like the, the golden standard on, you know, litho pencil formulas. Oh, that's so funny. I feel like, yeah, as... Uh commercial printing is getting more and more digital more and more advanced i feel like the fine art lithographer it's almost like um like going back into the history of time you know finding the cinefeld their recipes for litho crayons and doing it again (laughs) yeah that's really funny well i feel like yeah we're we're at the recording mark here but uh you are gonna hang out and chat with tim for a little bit right for for shop talk is that correct yeah excellent excellent well um michael it's been such a treat to catch up and to hear a bit more of your story i knew some of it but i always love to hear the details and to talk about your work and i i'm really looking forward to sharing it with everyone so thank you for letting me borrow an hour of your time well thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you it's been a pleasure well that's our show for this week join me again next week my guest will be ben rack a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. We'll talk about impression management, which is and isn't what you'd expect. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.